First reading is Psalm 34, page 441. <clears throat> this is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him, and be radiant, so your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried and was heard by the Lord, and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his holy ones, for those who fear him have no want. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, which of which of you desires life and covets many days to enjoy good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord rescues them from them all. He keeps all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil brings death to the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is Luke 18. And that's on page 853. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? 
I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Over the last few weeks, uh, we have been asking Jesus uh, to teach us to pray. Uh, And he is not unwilling. You can tell that from the scriptures which have an enormous interest in prayer. Uh, We are commanded to pray. We are instructed about prayer. Uh, We're told stories of answers to prayer. We see examples of great women and men of prayer. And we've seen why that is, at least in part. You see, Uh, Prayer is to our souls what oxygen is to our bodies, the thing without which we shrivel and gasp and die. And if that's the case, you might expect that prayer would be as easy and come as naturally as breathing. However, you don't have to be a Christian for more, I'd suggest, in a couple of days, certainly a few weeks, to learn that prayer really is hard. Uh, There's not much in us that makes prayer deep and rich and constant, and there's absolutely nothing in the culture around us that leads in that direction either. Which I suppose is one of the reasons why Uh, Jesus focuses particularly on encouraging us to pray. He repeatedly tells the disciples uh, that the Father is good, uh, so much better even than our own experience of fathers, and which father even among us would give a stone when his child asks for bread or a snake when the child asks for fish. And on the how much more argument, If this is how things work on a human level, how much more do they work on a divine level? How much more will the Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him, says Jesus? Or again, pray, says Jesus, and this mountain will be lifted up and thrown into the sea if you have faith the size even of a mustard seed. Or again, ask anything in my name. And it will be done for you. Constant encouragements to prayer because 
apart from these encouragements, there's every reason to wonder whether we'll stop praying much at all. Uh, Last week we looked at what to pray and saw that the content of prayer can be summarised in the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving and Supplication. And today we look at the issue of how to pray. And you'll notice that uh, I've got uh, only two points. Uh, Firstly, how to keep praying and then uh, when we get that right, what will our stance, our heart's posture in prayer be? So first then, how to keep praying. The first uh, paragraph of Luke chapter 18 has Jesus in intensely pastoral mode. Uh, He is, we read, concerned that we understand our need to pray always and not to lose heart. And there are two things to notice uh, here right from the start. Uh, On the one hand, uh, that we need to pray. Uh, It is true that we ought to pray. Okay, it's true that failure to pray really is a failure to treat God as God in any meaningful sense at all. And praying because you ought to pray, praying in that sense from duty, is at least something and better than not praying and coming to God at all. But here Jesus invites us to see something deeper about prayer. That amongst all the things that we need in our lives, love and meaning and hope and joy, prayer stands right up there among them. We need to pray. Now, the the fact is that there's also a, a greater depth to a praying life even than this, which is when Uh, You pray not merely because you ought to, nor solely because you need to, but because you want to. Praying from delight in the living and true God. Uh, But Jesus does not lift the bar that high. He knows our need to prayer and he responds to that. But the second thing to see is the connection between stopping praying and losing heart. And the key is that there is a spiral here which actually can work for us or against us. It can spiral down or it can spiral up. It can spiral down when you lose heart. Um, That is, when you become internally uncertain and hesitant and wobbly. And so you drop your head and you focus on yourself and your circumstances and how difficult they are and you either grit your teeth or you grumble. But either way, you stop praying. You see, losing heart leads you to stop praying, resting on your own resources. And the thing is that your own resources are always going to be inadequate to face the real storms of life. And so you lose more heart. And you pray less, and you lose more heart, and round and round you go, spiralling down. But there's an alternative. The alternative is to spiral up, to use the same thing in a positive direction. As you pray and you see God at work around you, and perhaps even more wonderfully, you see God at work within you, and so you gain heart, which leads you into more and greater praying, and greater heart, and round and round you go, spiralling up. 
And to encourage that upward spiral, Jesus tells a story, a parable. Uh, and it's kind of curious. I don't know if you felt it as it was read. Uh, a widow comes to an unjust judge and pleads for help. Uh, she's being oppressed unjustly and wants him to use his authority to provide her relief. And the invitation of the parable is clearly to see ourselves in this widow. Uh, she's poor and weak and has no husband to stand up for her. Her only source of potential help in that culture is the judge. Ourselves, poor and weak, no strength to speak of. Our only source of help is God. She comes again and again uh, until he gives her the help she needs, but, and here's the sort of awkward bit, right? Notice it's simply to get her off his back. Uh, which, as I say, when you first hear it, doesn't help that much since it sounds like Jesus is saying, just as we're to see ourselves in the widow, so we are to see God in the judge, and that's pretty unnerving. Actually, the argument of the parable is not that if you can wear out an unjust human judge, then you may just stand a chance of wearing out God uh, so that he helps you in order to get you off his back. Rather, the parable itself shows us that uh, everything hangs on God being different from the judge. We are like the widow, but God is different from the judge. You see, Jesus tells us uh, two things about the unjust judge. Uh, first in verse 2, which the uh, judge himself repeats in verse 4 in a display of refreshing self-awareness. He neither feared God nor had respect for people. He just says it again. Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone. This is not the kind of person you want to be your friend. In other words, these are the two marks of the judge that stand as obstacles to his helping the widow. And the question is, actually, do they, even in the terms of the parable, also stand for God? And of course, the answer is no. The first is that he has no fear of God and therefore he's not prone to help her precisely because a fear of God would prompt a judge to help a needy widow. And the reason Jesus emphasises this in the parable is precisely that God is not like the unjust judge. Uh, one of the most frequent categories uh, of concern and care in the Old Testament that is expressed of God is his concern for widows. So it's going to be a how much more argument. If a judge who has no fear of God can be persuaded by, persuaded, sorry, swayed by persistent petitions, how much more certain can we be that God will help those who cry to him day and night? And, but the second mark of the judge is that he has no respect for anyone. Uh, the widow um, was unknown to him. He has no interest in her and I guess the assumption is something like that if he cared about the widow, say, for example, if uh, she were his mother, that he would help her. And, and so the question is, does God have no regard for us? Is he indifferent to our needs? But, but the parable itself gives us the answer. In verse 7, uh, we, have, uh, we read, And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones? You see, 
the whole thrust of the parable is that the disciples of Jesus are not in the category of strangers to God. On the contrary, they're his chosen ones. Special and precious. He's, he's chosen them. He set his favour upon them. Then they're, they're not unknown. In fact, they're the opposite of unknown. They've been adopted as his children. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, uh, he says, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect, his chosen ones? There is no condition of a person more precious than to be chosen by God. It means he set his favour upon us fully and freely. He is for us with all his might. And so you can see the argument then, if, if an unjust judge can be moved by persistent petitions to help a stranger for whom he has no regard, how much more, how much more will God help his own chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Which leads Jesus, you see, to his final point, and it's the sting in the tail. You see, what he's, what he's said so far is that there is no reason in God for us to lose heart and to kind of enter this death spiral spiritually. No, God's not like this unjust judge, and even this unjust judge will hear when people come before him. How much more the living and true God? In other words, the only question that's left is the one that Jesus ends with in verse 8. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the challenge is simply this. Prayer really is the measure of our faith. Prayer really is the measure of our faith. It is as simple as that. You can put it as a hypothetical. Um, what would change about your life if you stopped praying? I think it's a very challenging question, actually. What would change about your life if you stopped praying? And if the kind of default move of your heart is... Um, not much, actually. Then you see you've given the answer to Jesus' question. To the degree that we know the living and true God, and especially, specifically, the degree to which we know his greatness and goodness, and at the same time, to the degree that we know our own weakness and poverty and feebleness in this world, we will pray. Or, or to put it around the other way, you can tell, you, you can discern, you can kind of empirically verify the extent to which you really do know the goodness and greatness of God and the weakness and feebleness of yourself by how you do, in fact, pray. Because when you have faith on this earth in the unseen divine realities rather than being deceived and misled by the things that are seen, to, to buy the story of our world, that education and technology and 
Wealth will solve any problem with just enough application of human ingenuity. When you trust, when you have faith in the unseen divine realities, rather than being misled by the things that are seen, then you won't lose heart. You won't forget your need to pray. You'll know that you can't make it through the day or the week or the year without pouring out your heart to God, crying out to him for justice and strength and forgiveness and for his transforming work on your soul. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Which leads to the second point, you see. This kind of faith-filled prayer will be characterised by two complementary, although at first blush almost contradictory, stances. So second, our posture in prayer. Now, I don't mean our physical posture, although uh, interestingly I think that can be powerfully expressive. Uh, you know the Jewish practice was to pray standing with outstretched arms. And it's, it's quite interesting to do this. I don't know if you've ever done this in prayer, uh, either in public or even in private for yourself. Um, to, to, to stand like this um, actually does, I think, two things at the same time. On the one hand, it, it's, it's expressive of an upwardness to God, a greatness and glory and majesty and awe of God. And at the same time, of course, it's to open yourself up entirely. It's to make yourself utterly vulnerable to him to do with you, in you, whatever it is he chooses. Likewise, a different posture, say kneeling, will express a different mode. And it's worth reflecting on uh, whether you ever vary your physical posture in your prayers, actually. Um, or whether, actually, the, the, the way it turns out, just more or less, is that it's always the same posture, the same mode, the same place every single time and there can be some helpful things about familiarity and yet I wonder whether part of developing your prayer life might be to adopt different physical postures as a way of praying different kinds of prayers but I don't have in mind particularly our physical physical posture uh, other than those few words rather it's our spiritual posture the stance of our hearts before God that I just want to focus on uh, briefly because the, the invitation is that as Jesus does find faith on the earth. As he does find faith in us, in the how much more God, that our stance is both dependence with reverence and confidence with trust. Uh, On the one hand, dependence with reverence. Uh, Dependence is at one level a feeling that we have in ourselves, but before it's a feeling we experience, it must be an objective fact. The idea is not to con yourself into a feeling of dependence, it's to embrace the reality of dependence. We are dependent on God. For the breath we draw, the blood that circulates, the electricity that fires in our neurons... He upholds us and all the universe by his right hand of power. It's in and through him that we live and move and have our being. All we have and are comes from him as his good gift. And it's the depth of our grasp of this that in large part determines how we pray. The more we think we can operate independently, the more confident we are 
that we control our circumstances and fate, the less we'll be driven to prayer. It really is just as simple as that. The more competent we feel, the more we see ourselves managing our world successfully, the less our need to bring our requests to God. But but this attitude of dependence, of recognition of the reality of our circumstances, and it only takes an adverse finding by the doctor to show just how dependent we really are, just how not in control of our lives we actually are. This acknowledgement of dependence will reflect itself in our approach, namely it will be one with reverence. We come not as peers to the living and true God. We come as inferiors. It's an interesting exercise to look through the Bible for prayers uh, of Scripture, prayers that God's people have prayed. And in so many cases, I'd suggest that um, what we find there is um, what we might even call uh, kind of an approach to God that is formal or even stiff. Uh, In 1 Kings 8, for example, when Solomon dedicates... Uh, the temple, uh, or in Acts chapter 4 when the disciples are being persecuted and pray for boldness to witness to Christ. The prayers are very strong. They're, they're almost sort of formulaic. They're deep. There's a, there's a profound reverence to them. And I think it's possible to stray outside the bounds of this dependence which leads to reverence. It's possible to pray irreverently. And we mustn't do that. And at the same time, whilst we pray in reverent dependence, we're also to pray with confidence, a profound, lifting confidence that we have the right to be before God, that that you belong there, that you're not somehow an intruder at that point, that God delights to hear the prayers of his people who come into uh, his presence with their requests. Come not in our own name, of course, never in our own name, but only and always in the name of Jesus, in his fitness to be in the presence of God. And that confidence is always a product of a fundamental trust in the goodness of God. The deep knowledge that God is never not listening and never not active. Uh, Tim Keller in the book that is uh, the resource for our series on prayer uh, puts it like this. Um, He says, "It's it's a confidence in God's goodness knowing that when you pray, God is giving you precisely what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. It's a very interesting kind of approach, isn't it? That God is giving you precisely what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Uh, This is a confidence that can lead you to walk all the way to the cross, following Jesus, you see praying that the cup be taken from you and yet with a profound commitment and even contentment. 
saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. And trusting that even if there is crucifixion at the end of this journey, the goodness and power of God are such that there is the other side of crucifixion in glorious resurrection. Do you see our posture in prayer, this, this dependent, humble, confident, coming before God that his will be done on earth and in our lives as it's done in heaven. Not, not demanding as though God were yours to command, but not sniveling either, as though you somehow didn't belong there. Almost contradictory, as I say. And yet we hold on to both. All right, let's, let's draw the threads together for this morning. Uh, in Revelation chapter 8, uh, the very interesting moment uh, where uh, the Apostle John describes a scene in heaven um, after the uh, seals have been broken on the scrolls in the, in the picture language that John uses that tell the story of human sin and violence and God's judgment. It's, it's a weird, you know, picture, but the, the meaning is pretty clear. Um, that, that's all five, six, seven. And, and then a remarkable thing happens. John writes that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And during this time, an angel with a golden censer, that's like a, a, a bowl, uh, which, is, which is hot, uh, comes to the altar and offers incense. And the incense is a representation of the prayers arising from the earth. Uh, Revelation 8 Uh, verse 4 reads, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the consequence of heaven hearing earth's prayers is described in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. All classic biblical imagery for God present and powerfully working in this world. Normally we think of events on earth being interrupted because of actions taken in heaven. But here notice, notice it's the other way around. All of heaven comes to a standstill. And again, just go back to the imagery of Revelation uh, chapter 8. The endless songs and praises of the angels and all the heavenly host stops. It's like the the music director just... Why? What stops heaven? Because someone's praying. That's why. All of heaven stops so that the prayers of the saints, your prayers and my prayers, every one of them, can rise before God. They matter that much that nothing must be allowed to drown them out. They're heard. The prayers of ordinary human beings interrupt heaven. And what happens next on earth happens as a consequence of those prayed prayers. One commentator put it this way, history belongs to the intercessors. History belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. 
History does not belong to the powerful or the wealthy or the military or the media. What they do on their own, apart from God, may look impressive for a time. But the day will come when it will be sorted and judged. And we participate in that work of God. A just judge by our prayers. Lord Jesus Christ, teach us to pray.